This edition of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Barbara Bush Foundation Adult Literacy X Prize. Learn more by visiting the following website, adultliteracy.xprize.org. The 2015 Einicol Symposium started and ended in Orlando this week, and if you missed what happened there, uh, well, so did I. But luckily, our colleagues Mary Jo Matta and Christina Quattrochi were there on the scene. We debriefed with them to hear about their big takeaways from the conference and talk about what the discussions at Einicol mean for the future of schools in the U.S. That plus our news bits coming up. I'm Michael Winters. And I'm Blake Montgomery. Let's get started. Remember how the San Francisco Unified School District announced it would be offering computer science classes to all public school students? And New York City quickly followed suit? Los Angeles Unified is hopping on the train with the goal of giving all K-12 students access to computer science classes by 2020. That's five years more aggressive than NYC's plans. Honestly, I'm just excited for them to compare with one another like siblings with toys. Amplify is not dead, but there's no question that it has been greatly diminished. In this column this week, EdSurge columnist Michael Horn analyzes three strategic mistakes that Amplify made on its path from its $360 million acquisition to its big write-down and ultimate sale to private investors. First, Horn writes, the company should have pursued a strategy of profits first, growth second, to validate that customers were willing to pay for its products. Second, Amplify wound up creating products that did not mesh well with traditional learning models at most schools. And finally, Amplify's products required too much effort and time from teachers. Find more details on edsurge.com. On November 10th, the White House announced $375 million in public and private support for efforts aimed at redesigning U.S. high schools as part of its summit on next-generation high schools. The Endeavor bundles six federal programs and almost 30 private initiatives that aim to rethink schools in order to offer young people the opportunity to access an education more connected to the 21st century, aka personalized and hands-on learning. The collection of efforts presents a basket of projects that are somewhere in between future intentions and real commitments. All bets are off and we're ready for what's next. London-based TouchPress is putting 21 of its 31 apps on the selling block. The company creates what Forbes has called living coffee table books, and the company's first app, The Elements, was included on the very first iPads given to journalists when iPads launched back in 2010. Has it really only been five years? But TouchPress has faced a problem familiar to us in the news business. It's difficult to get consumers to pay for content, no matter how in-depth or interactive it is. The company now plans to focus on creating music apps that help students of all ages learn piano and other classical instruments. Renaissance Learning has released its annual What Kids Are Reading and the Path to College and Careers report. Analyzing 9.8 million students who read 334 million books during the 2014-15 school year, Renaissance has come to a grim conclusion. Students are not meeting any college and career readiness standards in reading. In its research, Renaissance focused on three metrics this year in alignment with Common Core standards time spent reading, nonfiction reading, and text complexity. Students are faring well in none of the three areas. And now it's time for Kachings. This week was a big one for EdTech funding. Let's start with the latest member of the Unicorn Club, Udacity. 
The company announced this week that it has raised a $105 million Series D round, which values the company at $1 billion, hence the unicorn moniker. This latest round for the professional skills providing MOOC was led by German-based media conglomerate Bertelsmann, with a host of other investors participating. And speaking of Series D, LMS maker Schoology has raised a $32 million Series D round led by JMI Equity. The New York-based company says it will use the money to expand its distribution and make infrastructure improvements to its product. According to the press release, Schoology is already used by 12 million people in 130 countries. Congratulations to them and to all of the other companies that raised money this week. We'll be right back with our iNicole deep dive right after this word from our sponsor. On November 18th, world-renowned edtech leaders and innovators will converge on Cooper Union in New York City, and you are invited. The MIT Enterprise Forum of New York, with generous support from Fiverr, presents the New York City kickoff of the Barbara Bush Foundation Adult Literacy X Prize. Join the best and brightest entrepreneurs, investors, hackers, and edtech enthusiasts for conversations about the changing face of adult education. Among the speakers will be Peter Diamandis, Chairman and CEO of XPRIZE, Jake Schwartz, CEO of General Assembly, and Jonathan Harbour, former CEO of SchoolNet and Pearson K-12 Technology. To reserve your free spot for the evening reception and panel presentations, go to www.adultedweek.com and look for the VIP promo code. That's www.adultedweek.com. On November 8th through 11th, Orlando, Florida became the center of the blended learning world. The iNicole conference attracted over 5,000 attendees this year and featured over 180 sessions and workshops on everything from new school models to data privacy and blended learning to examining student outcomes. Our EdSurge colleagues, Christina Quattrochi, Director of Research and Development, and Mary Jo Matta, Senior Editor and our podcast co-host, were at the conference and took some time to share with us what they learned. Christina, whose voice you'll hear first, was here in our studio, but Mary Jo was in a Panera Bread in Los Angeles, <laughs> so you might hear some background noise. All right, here we go. So hi, Christina. Hi, Mary Jo. Hi, Michael. How Hi. are you? Good. Hello, Michael. Thanks for thanks for jumping on, Christina. Let's start with you. What for the uninitiated, which which truly includes me, I'm not really sure either. Um, what is iNicole? Um, so iNicole is a great organization with a ton of amazing research, and they've done in the past historically they've done a lot of work around um, online schools, blended schools and competency-based education. And so they release a lot of research and also bring together this community of practice around those things, um, which has now grown into this 5,000-person conference. Um, and so they do share a lot of research. They're very active in, in kind of as a thought leader in those areas. And as the industry's evolved, they've now become a big thought leader in personalized learning as well. Mary Jo, who is it that goes to iNicole? Is it just reporters and teachers, or what is, what's the conference made up of? It definitely seemed like the crowd was predominantly made up of administrators, 
think tankers, which I know isn't a word, but I've used it in the last couple of days, people who work for nonprofits, and then also third party organizations like the Gates Foundation and New School Venture Fund, et cetera. Um, you didn't see as many teachers there this round. And I think the reason is because Inacol really works at a really high level in terms of vision setting and framework building for blended and personalized programs. Now, this was both my and Christina's first times at Inacol. So I understand that years past the uh, demographic may have been different, but at least this year, that's who the major crowd was. Um, and you had a couple of companies and a couple of uh, third-party providers who create products there, um, but they made up a, a smaller amount of the attendees than you would see at something like South by Southwest EDU. Okay, and, and so, um Christina, like, just describe this to us. Is this like an ISTE where there's like yeah. a, a vendor hall and panels or is it just, how, how does it look? They have, just like any conference, dozens and dozens of um, awesome workshops you can you can uh, engage in. Um, there's a vendor hall, uh, like many others, other conferences. It's not like the ISTE level of a vendor hall. I mean, it, I don't think anybody can really top ISTE in the madness that happens in that vendor hall. So it's a pretty, it's like a very much like a traditional conference. I think one thing that's really interesting about Inacol is while they have all these incredible sessions, um, they're also, I think, a lot of people come to Inacol to meet. And so, you know, the lobbies are just filled with people taking meetings. Um, there couldn't be enough meeting space. And it, you constantly see that. People come to, like, talk about what is the latest thinking. Um, and, and you hear a lot of folks at different foundations that are there talking about, okay, what's our next investment? How do we shape the next step? So Inacol is this great conference where people are really coming to kind of shape the next step of the industry, where, like, ISTE is this awesome place where you got the companies and the educators all converging, really excited to talk about practice. Um, this is really talking about, like, how are the things in the industry or, like, uh, you know, kind of the designs and the future of this industry going to change? It's kind of the difference is, like, ISTE is about the reality. Inacol is about the future. Mary Jo, why don't we, let's start with you. What was your big, uh, big theme that you saw or, or a, a big takeaway from, from Inacol? The question of how do you measure blended learning success came up all over and over again. And it wasn't just because I went to panels where that was actually the theme of the panel. You know, we heard from individuals like Sean Rubin of the Highlander Institute in Rhode Island to Stacy Childress of the New School Venture Fund to district administrators from the likes of Fulton County in Georgia and uh, West Ada County in um, Idaho talking about how do you decide what your goals are for blended learning and what should we be celebrating? The one thing I started hearing a lot about was are test scores an accurate representation of whether or not blended learning is working for student achievement? And even then, there's this question of causality. Can you draw a direct line from blended learning tools like STMath and Dreambox to test scores and assume that cause A resulted in effect B? So I heard that from people over and over and over again. And uh, one of the big themes that I recognized there was because of the frustration that's embedded in only using test scores as a measure of success, a lot of districts and charter schools and third parties are looking to 
softer skill measurements to track success. How do you measure though something like grit? How do you measure um, intrinsic motivation? How do you measure someone gaining skills of creativity when it's hard to use something like a multiple choice test to track that? And I think one thing to add, I think that, that we saw when we're talking about like, how do we know that these models or the tools are effective? Like this, this like what's working? There's like people want so badly to know what's working. But it's interesting because when you think about the way that a lot of these schools are designed, particularly around personalized learning or um, competency-based learning, a lot of them are designed um, not just with student achievement in mind, but also with like helping kids be more autonomous learners, like learning how to learn. And so it's interesting because, you know, they're not really designed for uh, explicitly to do well on the map exam, right, which is the map test, which is what most people are using as their, as their measurement. And so because they're not designed specifically with that goal in mind, um, there's a lot of questions around what are the right measurements that we're looking to that indicate success. Um, and so I, I heard that come up a lot, and I think that we have to really think about, like, you know, if we're, if we're using the MAP exam as our measurement for, you know, what's working, what's not, and somebody is, is lecturing in a classroom directly to the MAP exam, that class is going to do a whole heck of a lot better than that blended learning class or that class with a really alternative, like, or different design. That's, that's very similar to something I'm beginning to hear more and more from both entrepreneurs and Educators talking about entrepreneurs, which is you know <laughs> measuring the effect of, of individual tools like like Mary Jo was saying. I mean those those work those work together. Right, but I don't know. It's interesting because I don't know about you, MJ, but I heard a lot of folks talk about like the efficacy of the model as a whole of the school model. And I know that there were some people talking about the the work that Leap is doing to do short term efficacy trials in Chicago um, around the tools. But MJ, I don't know. I, I really didn't hear a ton about the specific tools and companies. Did you hear stuff like that? Yeah, not really. And granted, uh, environments like South by Southwest EDU, I think are much more of a space for those sorts of conversations just because the sheer number of companies are so much larger than they were at Inacol. Yeah, I agree with you, MJ. Like. We're so used to talking about the tools and the specific ed tech. Inacol is really about the design um, of the model. And um, the design of the model is something that's really hard to measure, too. Just yeah. like measuring the efficacy of the tools is really hard to measure. So, Christina, you're, yeah, you're, I think you mentioned a, a theme for you is, is um, the, just, just general discussion of, of school model design and, and what is working. But um, was, was there a big, big takeaway from the conference for you? Um, I think the takeaway for me was um, was that everybody's still trying to figure out what these models are, right? And yet, like, the hunger in the field is for some definition around what does a model of personalized learning really look like when it's really effective. But I think my theme that I'm taking away is that we're still deeply exploring what school models really look like. Um, and there's lots of different options and you can, there's lots of fast, you know, innovators out there that we can look to, um, like the Brooklyn Labs of the world and like the, you know, the summits and um, all those folks who are just pushing the boundaries, but we still don't have clarity um, for what it looks like at, you know, just like a standard level. 
And um, and so I think we'll look still look in 2016 for a little bit more clarity and standardization around what does personalized learning actually look like at a school level. Yeah, I'll go along with what Christina said, but I'm going to add a little bit more of a critical standpoint to it. Uh, when I left Inacol, I thought to myself, dang, there were a lot of frameworks that came out of that three-day they're just, it's its like hotcakes now, you know? And I think to myself, if I was a school administrator, how would I even go about deciding which of these frameworks I would want to adopt for my model? And the only thing I can think is I would want to work with other school administrators who were in comparable situations and see how they had adopted a particular framework and then take some advice from them. I, I worry sometimes that with all these frameworks that these really theoretical vision-oriented organizations are putting together, that there's not necessarily enough support for administrators and schools and districts and teachers to understand how you take that framework, adapt, adapt it to what you're looking for, and then bring it down to the ground level, You know, pulling out specific concrete practices that you can use in your respective educational context. Let me make sure I, I understand the difference here between framework and school model. So uh, a framework is is almost like a, a guiding principle. It's some kind of a, a blueprint that, that a Gates Foundation or, or another kind of large overarching organization um, that they, they, would, they would put out and say, we think that a school founded on these four tenants would be good. And then um, a school model is when a, a summit public schools or aspire or or alt school or whoever ha takes that blueprint and they put it into practice in a physical building exactly so theoretically you could have several different school models start with a particular framework but they could interpret it and act on it differently so those school models could look different when they're actually designed and put together and I think what's healthy about frameworks is that they should theoretically be um, elastic enough that a school designer could take it and design it one way and another school designer could take it and design it another way, depending on what parts of the framework they consider most important. And then also thinking about the community that they're looking to serve. You know, how should that framework be interpreted in the best way to serve those particular students and parents in the way that the school designer thinks is most helpful. So that's the only thing that concerned me a little bit about Inacol. And, and along with that, you, I'm curious to see if you agree with this, Christina. There did seem to be a little bit of clickiness in the sense that people showed up to Inacol and sort of spent time with the groups that they were comfortable with. You know, the charter people spent time to get together. The public school districts spent time together. The nonprofits spent time together. And I'm wondering if there was enough cross-pollination going on, because in my opinion, it's that cross-pollination that ensures that those frameworks get adopted in productive ways. I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see a ton of cross-pollination. Um, and part of that is because, like, you know, you get a unique event where everybody gets to be in the same place, and you're, like, so excited to spend those couple days, like, really geeking out. Um, and it'd be interesting to see a version of iNicole that was really designed for more of that cross-pollination, MJ. So I think that is a, 
hopefully a future that we can look forward to. But I agree with you yeah. on the on the frameworks. Like for for school leaders, there's really no path to follow um, unless you're lucky enough to be a part of an incubator or something that is giving you the time and space to think through what those new school designs actually mean for your operations, for your budget, for your staffing, for like how do you actually translate that into a, into on the ground. Um, but there's no real path to follow yet. And um, I think, I, I wonder if there, if there will be. Um, you know, the Gates Foundation, Tom, uh, Tom Stratikas, who, who gave, a, gave a speech from, he's from the Gates Foundation, and he was saying, you know, we, the Gates Foundation is not going to wed themselves over the next year to a specific model. They're going to look at areas of innovation that can scale, essentially. So if they're not going to define it, who's going to define it? Well, that's when, so I think that's when you can look to someone like Sean Rubin, for example, of the Highlander Institute as a great, it's a great example. You know, he was saying back to the idea of success, we need to stop thinking of the end point and look more at the process as evidence of success. If teachers are adopting technology in new and innovative ways, that is something to celebrate. And maybe by going ahead and like picking a model outright or adapting it to what you need, you might be limiting yourself. So maybe it's about letting the users decide what they want. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, I struggle with this too, because I agree with Sean, right? Like there's a trajectory, there's a path, there's first steps that you need to take, right? But those first steps might just look like technology integration into a traditional model. So if we're really talking about transforming the way students learn and, um, and how we teach, uh, to give like deeper skills and to give kids like all the like all the the great uh, you know cognitive uh, and non-cog skills that, that we want them to have, then I, I actually do think that we need to push the envelope that we can't just that there needs to be a lot of people taking those basic steps, those baby steps, but there needs to be more Brooklyn labs of the world. There needs to be more summits of the world. We need more like design tech highs. We need more people. Um, really pushing the envelope and then defining the path that they took so that other people that might have tech integration down but want to start taking those next steps can actually take some concrete next steps and feel good about that because they're going to be those fast followers but even as a fast follower I wouldn't know where to go um, so it can't just be individual innovators we need to create a path um, and I, I agree with Sean in some ways and I'd push back in some other ways Wow, that, that was great. Sounds like you guys learned a lot at Anacol. Uh, as usual, you have reached a level of discourse that is beyond me. I just had to, <laughs> had to take a step back there. Uh, and uh, thank you guys for, for sharing what you learned on the show. Thanks, Michael. I had a lot of fun. Thanks, Michael. You guys are the best. Thanks to Mary Jo and Christina for hopping on the show with us today. And thanks also to Michael Horn and all the other writers who joined us this week. And final call for Dila tickets. Our awards gala for the Digital Innovation in Learning Awards is coming up next Friday, January 20. If you are a teacher or administrator and you'd like to attend, we still have a couple of free tickets left to give away. Just shoot us a note at feedback at edsurge.com with a question that you would like all of our DLA winners to answer. And company people out there, if you want to hobnob with the winners and our other educator attendees, there are still tickets available for purchase. Take a look at dealers.org slash gala. And finally, finally, thanks to all of you for listening. We love making these shows and we hope that you enjoy them too. Please subscribe and tell a friend. 
Michael, this was our first show together. It was fun. Yeah, it was. Hopefully more to come. Yeah, I hope so. I'm Blake Montgomery. And I'm Michael Winters. We'll see you next week. This is the Ed Surge Podcast. Thank you.